Hello, brother. Uh, Mike will join in a minute. Uh, and sorry for for delay. No problem. So greetings once again. Now we are live on YouTube as well. And uh, it's 8 p.m. So I think we can start. So my name is Wachtang. I'll be helping David today to moderate today's lecture. And uh, aiming at spreading the light farther around the world and promoting acquisition of Gnosis through dedicated reading. Saperi Aude and Lewis Masonic under the mutual initiative Legere Aude or Dare to Read have the honor to host brother Mike Lawrence born and raised in Hockney, London in the early 50s. He followed his father's footsteps and joined the London Borough and Hockney, having studied municipal administration and British constitution at Tottenham Technical College. He spent much of his work career in local government, pioneering self-help programs for the long-term unemployed and those experiencing mental and physical illness. Working alongside central government policies, which initiated the employment, trading, and community action programs. Again, following in his father's footsteps, he was initiated into Freemasonry in 1994, when his contract... Your, uh, your microphone is muted. Could you unmute it again, please? Yes. So... Can you hear me now? Yeah, yeah, yep. go ahead, please. So today's uh, lecture, the title is English Accepted Masonry with the Scottish Non-Operative Masonry by Brother Mike Lawrence. Now, Brother Mike, the floor is yours. Thank you very much. I hope that everybody can hear me. And um, there's quite a lot of information to get through uh, today. So I hope you can follow as I uh, start to speak. The lecture uh, or the, the paper was taken from my first book, uh, which I later on expanded upon uh, and surprisingly found some greater information to follow. But it was several years ago when I was at a meeting and there was no candidate. I was asked to lead a conversation on who was initiated first into Freemasonry, whereabouts in the world. And that was the, the start of, of, of a thought process. Now, the right worshipful brother who asked the question was Scottish and he cited Scotland being the first place that a non-operative Mason was initiated. Well, I'm part Irish, but I put that aside and opted for England. And as we progress through this paper this evening, you'll see the evidence that uh, I'm, I'm going to present. Little did I know at the time when I started the uh, paper how in depth it would be and uh, so I'm here this evening merely to exchange some thoughts with you and some of the results of my research to this respected and like-minded group 
the thrust of the original lecture was to look at the earliest admission of men by way of acceptance or initiation into an established trade organisation, that being the Mason's trade. The essay very quickly realised that Scottish Lodge record keeping and the preservation of those records set a clear timeline as to the introduction of non-operative admissions into Scottish lodges. England, however, I'm sure you will agree, poses more difficulties as one as a completely set of different documents to examine. And English admissions seem virtually non-existent prior to the mid 17th century. Or were they? In England, we have those famed documents, that we call them the old charges or the old constitutions. They span a period of between 14 and the 17th century. And they're quite specific in their content. But they fascinated me as to how they, they morphed by some sort of osmosis from a working, a trade working document into Masonic, Masonic fraternity status. Now on examination, some do contain the possible suggestions of early entrance into lodges by non-operative Masons. But what I'm gonna develop that a bit later. There are also other documents available in England here, which are namely the building accounts and municipal records and the fabric rolls, which although often overlooked, show Masons activity in England from the 12th century. Now I say Masons activity, not Masonic activity. Mason's activity being, I refer to the builder. So before I proceed, let me just remind us all of the objective of what I'm uh, establishing here is the, the earliest non-operative admission into a work in Mason's Lodge. And just to remind us, as I said, that early Mason's Lodges were not Masonic Lodges. They were working trade lodges. Additionally, I would just like us to think about the definition of a lodge or the word lodge, often spelt in the English manuscripts as logia, loge, loge, luge. It's actually an old French Gallic word meaning hut or arbor, uh, arbor, which seems to have been used in England and Scotland for different purposes. Firstly, in both countries, the term lodge was used to designate a mason's workshop that was generally erected in connection with all building operations. So hence we read that the Val Royal Abbey building accounts of 1278, carpenters were paid to erect lodges. The same goes for Mason's lodges and workshops at Catterick Bridge in 1421 
and in the Kirby Muxlow Castle accounts of 14, uh, sorry, 1481 also. We also have details of Mason's repairs to their workshops and their lodges at Beaumaris Castle in 1330 and Westminster Abbey in 1431. So the lodge was in fact a workshop where Masons cut, dressed and carved stone. And it will be fair to say that they would have taken their permitted breaks within its walls, as recorded in the York Minster in 1370 and St Giles, Edinburgh in 1491. It is also most likely within its walls, questions affecting the Masons trade were discussed along with difficulties experienced, grievances, work techniques, apprentice training, and so on. Secondly, the word lodge in both countries described a group of Masons working together on the same building. Thus, we find reference in York in 1352, which refers to bylaws and ordinances, in Canterbury in 1429, which refers to its members as the Masons of the Lodge, and in Aberdeen in 1481, which refers to the conditions of employment, and in Edinburgh in 1491 also, which refers to written statements of old established customs. In effect, it's highly probable that the lodges of Masons were in fact older than the respective dates I've mentioned, which is only the earliest traceable evidence and not necessarily the start of the formation of the lodge. And the third and final part of the definition, in Scotland, the word lodge is also used to describe an organized body of Masons associated with a particular town or district. And in the Shaw Statutes of 1598 and 1599, we read the, that Edinburgh shall be the first principal lodge and Kilwinning the second. And from the St. Clair Charters of 1601 and 1628, we learn of other territorial lodges at St. Andrews, Dundee and Glasgow, just to name but three. These lodges carried out official duties of a trade nature, including the regulation of apprentices, keeping records of the reception and entry of apprentices, and the admission of fellow crafts and assigning marks to members. Other duties would have included settling disputes between masters and their servants, ensuring no cowans were employed, ensuring masters did not employ apprentices of other journeymen and so on. So having established a few basics, let's first take a look at Scotland where the early lodge records show us the development of lodges and thus we can establish some quite accurate facts. For example, the minutes of the Atchison Haven Lodge which began in 1599, 
was a work in Mason's Lodge. However, the first record of a non-operative Mason was not until 1672, some 73 years later. Similarly, in 1599, we find the earliest minutes of the Lodge of Edinburgh, Mary's Chapel. Here we see the Lodge taking over the duties of the incorporations by passing apprentices of, uh, to fellow crafts. And it traces the careers of hundreds of Masons at various stages in their working lives. And the first mention of non-operative admissions was on the 3rd of July in 1634, when Lord Alexander and Sir Anthony Alexander, both sons of the Earl of Stirling, and Sir Alexander Strachan were separately initiated or admitted as fellow crafts. Later, the minute book gives us all the information we need to know of the steady admission of working masons and uh, the lodge continued to exercise its functions as an operative lodge up until the 1700s making trade regulations for apprentices, journeymen and masters, collecting quarterages and punishing offenders. There has been a suggestion that the first non-operative mason into this lodge was that of John Boswell, who was the third laird of Achinleck, who was a Scottish gentleman. However, Although Boswell's mark and signature are found on the records of a meeting of the lodge, the lodge was quite different because it was the trial of the warden, John Brown. And it's therefore not sure in what capacity he was there. While it was possible he was an honorary member of the lodge, it is also possible that he was there only to give evidence for the prosecution um, and although the meeting was on the June the 8th, as I said, 1600, that was the only occasion in which Boswell's name was connected with that lodge or any other lodge. Then we have the minutes of the famed Mother Kill Winning Lodge, which began in 1642. Although legend has it that the lodge apparently began at the building of Kilwinning Abbey, the first reference we have of a non-operative joining was not till 672. So you might begin to see the picture which I'm drawing here. We have another interesting possibility for consideration as an early initiate into Scottish masonry which is found on the west wall of the lodge used by Lodge Schoon and Perth, where we find a mural depicting James VI kneeling at the altar and being uh, initiated. However, the records don't begin until nearly 60 years later. And it's therefore doubtful if this event happened. Incidentally, it was James VI that appointed William Shaw as master of the uh, work and the warden general in 1583. And it was Shaw 
that issued the Shaw Statutes in 1598 and 1599. Now, the first official initiation on English soil was performed and conducted by the Lodge of Edinburgh at St Mary's Chapel at Newcastle when Sir Robert Moray was made a Mason. 1650 saw the start of the Lodge of Dundee, its membership being made up of Masons and Freemen. And in 1670, the earliest Lodge records in Aberdeen begin. A list shows there were 10 operative masters and fellow crafts and 39 non-operatives, all drawn from the nobility, the gentry, professional men, merchants and tradesmen. And in between 1673 and 1701, there was a further nine operative lodges opened, all culminating with the opening of the first Scottish non-operative lodge, which was the Lodge of Hufffoot. And I'm sure you're familiar with the story connected to the Lodge of Hufffoot in 1701, but I'll tell it to you. Crucially, a member of the Lodge, probably the first secretary, wrote in the first several pages of the minute book, the complete admission procedure of that period. However, some time later, a well-meaning brother, possibly the next or the later secretary, believing this was a breach of secrecy, tore out the pages so as not to reveal them to any unauthorised person. However, there was 27 words left on the last page and directly underneath the 27 words was the heading the same day where the first meeting of the lodge was recorded. So those 29 words were actually authentic ritual which was used in a bona fide lodge of non-operative masons. And so crucial was that it verified four other important documents which up to the discovery of the minute book could not be verified as authentic ritual. So the four documents were the Edinburgh Register House manuscript of 1696, the Chetwood Crawley manuscript of 1700, the recently discovered Early manuscript of 1705, and the Kevin manuscript of 1714. The fragment provided the all important link to a ritual that was believed to have been practiced in Scotland for the previous century. And at this point, I'm sure you're wondering exactly what those 27 words were. Well, they're quite insignificant to be truthful. But here goes. Of entry, as the apprentice did, leaving out the common judge, then they whisper the word as before, and the master mason grips his hand after the ordinary way. Quite innocuous words, 
but they confirmed and verified the other ritual documents that we had as being true ritual. There's another tranche of Scottish documents, which I just want to mention here, and that's the Seal of Calls dated 1474, the Sore Statutes, which I've already referred to, 1598 and 1599, and the Sinclair Statutes and Letters of 1601 and 1628. But like so many English documents, they are devoted to the regulations of the Mason's trade. For example, transferring powers from the old incorporations to the new named lodges. The term lodge, as we said, referring to a Mason's, to an organization trade body. They do not appear to include any provision for non-operative Masons. So having given a brief summary of the activities from uh, the Scottish activities from these documents that I have available at the time of writing, including details of the earliest admissions, there is no doubt we can establish two things. Number one, Scotland possesses the earliest minute books for work in Mason's lodges. And two, these minute books detail the activities of the lodges, including dates and names of the first non-operative lodge members. So I'm now going to move on to look at what we have in England. The fact remains that the earliest lodge minutes in England do not begin until 1701. But that shouldn't deter us from our research, because what can be described as there are certain anecdotal or indirect evidence, which I believe has some honest value for some consideration. The York Manuscript, number one, which has been dated at 1600, contains the legendary history of the craft, both for masters and fellows. Masters and fellows. Its provenance is claimed by the endorsement on the back of one of its pages, which says, found in Pontefract Castle at the demolishing and given to the York Lodge by Francis Drake in 1732. Drake's father and grandfather were both vicars of Pontefract, and his grandfather was also a royalist who was in the town when the castle surrendered and it was demolished in 1649. The handwritten, the handwriting confirms the date, but what marks it out as the most curious item is the distinct introductory acrostic. And this is what it says. An anagram upon the name of masonry, William Kay to his friend, Robert Preston, upon his art of masonry as followeth. Now, what is now, there's the word masonry and there are, is a rhyme which goes on, and I'll read you the rhyme. M, much might be said for this noble art. A, a, 
a craft that's worth esteeming in each part. S. Sundry nations, nobles and their kings also. O. Oh, how they fought, it's worth to know. N. Nimrod and, Nimrod and Solomon, the wisest of all men. R. Reason saw to love this science then. I. I'll say no more, lest by my shallow verse I, E, endeavouring to praise work should blemish masonry. So, who was William Kay and Robert Preston? Well, sadly, there's no records that exist from any lodge or group which show who this document may have belonged to. But the two persons mentioned at the introduction of the manuscript were definitely connected with York because there are two free men with their names. William Kay was accepted as a spurier in 1569 and Robert Preston was accepted as a fishmonger in 1751. If therefore these contemporaries were actual men linked with the acrostic, then we have firm evidence that these persons who were not operative masons were associated with and involved in an organization which concerned itself with masonry and therefore become the first instance of membership of non-operative members. And what's more, one can only imagine that their association would have definitely began before that specified date of 1600. And we recall the Lodge of Dundee in 1650, which was set up using free men as its membership. But there's one more source which I can cite, which is even more curious. And these are the words of Dr. James Anderson in his 1723 and 1738 constitutions. The fact is, we very much accept James Anderson was a bit of a dreamer, maybe possibly even a charlatan. His sets of constitutions, which, by the way, the profits from the sales were his and his alone, were full of unsantiated claims about the origins of Freemasonry. And in my mind, like the Chevalier Ramsey, almost derailed Freemasonry from its true humble beginnings, as they both set out to give 18th century Freemasonry the noblest of heritage and whose propounded theories continue to linger around Freemasonry well into the 21st century. So normally I would never give heed to Anderson's comments had it not been for something else which I will lead on to. So these were Anderson's words written in 1723. For the learned and magnanimous Queen Elizabeth, whose reign was 1558 to 1603, who encouraged other arts, discouraged this masonry, because being a woman, she could not be made a mason, though, as other great women, she might 
have very much employed Masons. He then adds a footnote when he says Elizabeth being jealous of any assemblies of her subjects whose business she was not duly appraised of, attempted to break up the annual communication of Masons as dangerous to her government. But as old Masons have transmitted it by, tra by tradition, when the noble person Her Majesty had commissioned and brought a sufficient posse with them to York on St John's Day, were once admitted into the lodge, they made no use of arms and returned the Queen a most honourable account of the ancient fraternity, whereby her political fears and doubts were dispelled. She let them alone as a people much respected by the noble and wise of all polite nations. And going on to the 1738 constitutions, he relates the same type of story. Elizabeth, Elizabeth Tudor, daughter of Queen Anne Boleyn, aged 25, succeeded Sister Mary as Queen Sovereign. She restored the Protestant religion and was declared supreme head of the church, now learning of all sorts revived and the good old Augustan style in England began to peep from under its rubbish. And it would have soon made great progress if the Queen had affected architecture. But here in Mason said certain secrets that could not be revealed to her, for she could not be a grand master. And being jealous of all secret assemblies, she sent an armed force to break up their annual Grand Lodge on St John's Day. This tradition was firmly believed by all old English Masons. But Sir Thomas Sackville, the Grand Master, took care to make some of chief men sent Freemasons who then joining in that communication made a very honourable report to the Queen and she no more attempted to dislodge or disturb them. In giving my own humble consideration to those comments, usually I wouldn't pay too much heed to Anderson, but I then learned several other more eminent historians also made some comments on the subject. G.Y. Johnson said, it seems incredible that Anderson could have made up the story and perhaps these were some oral traditions of which we knew nothing. We can only call the story fiction. Lionel Vibert says, but what one feels is that Anderson must have had something to go on. Some germ from which he could develop the story. What was it? What is interesting is that in 1723, Anderson had the tradition of annual assemblies at York. And he could write as though it would be the ordinary course for a Grand Master of England to convene one of these assemblies in the reign of Queen Elizabeth. That there was never, that there probably was never a Grand Master is not important. The story told in 1723 looked probable and indicates that York was recognised by the Masons in London as a Masonic centre. Hewan says, 
those who have written on the subject have been more anxious to magnify mere traditions than to discover the few facts that remain. Before 1700, we have no record but simply the MS constitutions in respect of the story of Sir Thomas Sackville as related by George Oliver. He says, it's a pretty tale, but we believe it to be nothing more. For who has heard of such a wonderful narrative being supported by documentary evidence? So to be honest, I wouldn't, I would have dismissed it as as perhaps a pretty fiction but i found something else which indicated that there was a possibility of its truth and i want to move back now to the old charges and look closely at some of the wording how it slowly evolved and for this i'm going to quote from the downland manuscript of 1550 the lansdowne manuscript of 1560 the Grand Lodge Manuscript of 1583, and again from the York Manuscript of 1600. The Downland Manuscript says this, and also to those be willing, we will declare the charge that belongeth to any true Mason to keep in good faith. So they're using the word true Mason here. The Lansdowne Manuscript, and also to all those that be here we mind to show you the charge that belongeth to every true Mason to keep in good faith. Again, true Mason. Grand Lodge says, these are the charges in general that belong to every true Mason. But the York manuscript, and you remember I mentioned William Kay and Robert Preston, Anne Anderson's comments on a York assembly says this. And also to them that be here, we will declare the charges that belongeth to every Freemason to keep sure the good faith. So between 1583 and the latest and at the latest and 1600 at the earliest, we find that word change from true Mason to Freemason which is something I'd never considered previously. And is this the clue that we need to the start of this transitioning to initiating free men? There was another quote there, which also added to the mix, which gave me further consideration. The William Watson manuscript, which was endorsed by Edward Thompson in 1687, but is said to date from circa 1535 says this every honest mason or any other worthy workman that has any love for the craft of masonry and would like to know how the craft of masonry first came to england that was written in 1535 any other worthy workman that has any love for the craft of masonry and it then goes on to say may charges by their best judgment that all men who shall be made and allowed to become Masons. I mean, both quotes seem to indicate this possible change in who were allowed to become Masons, a proposal yet unrecorded in any other manuscript of the period. Subtle wording, which when presented together, certainly 
prove the basis for further consideration. I liken these words to those found in Dr. Robert Plot's 1686, A Natural History of Staffordshire, where he writes about the practice of admitting men of the most eminent quality into the society of Freemasons, a custom more or less spread all over the nation, of whom there are commonly known, sorry, of whom he goes on to describe many such like that are commonly known, and those are the operative Masons, but others they have to which are sworn after their fashion, that none but none know them but themselves. And now he's referring to non-operative Masons. As I explained earlier, in England, we don't have actual lodge records to verify accurate dates for early admissions. But we do have overwhelming evidence of a trade that was fully administered and recognised by 1356. And the building accounts, the fabric rolls, which state these working, date, uh, working masons activities to previous centuries also. In fact, in England, square stone buildings commenced as early as 674, when Benedict Bishop sought in Gaul for masons to build a church at Weymouth in the Roman style. Similarly, a 12th century chronicler recorded that St Wilfred, who died in 709, bought masons from Rome to build his church. Bede of 1675 to 735 also records in his chronicle the ecclesiastical history of the English people details of a number of stone churches and as a keen ecclesiologist myself I can list all pre-Norman churches that could be found in England. So despite the fact we have no formal records in England of admissions we have significant early evidence of an organised mason's trade and stone building accounts which give us some interesting details. So just to recap on this section, I've tried to show how during the 16th century, true masons became Freemasons and how every honest and other worthy workman with a love of the craft, may also have been allowed to join the craft. And like Scotland, England welcomed free men into their membership. So to which country England and Scotland admitted non-operative men into their lodges first, I'm going to leave for you to decide. I'm more interested in another serious question, which we need to examine. Why would a once flourishing trade organisation suddenly invite unrelated persons into their fraternity? I'd like you to consider this. Although we have evidence of early stone building in England, I think it's safe to say that building in stone and the bona fide trade of masons began in earnest after the Norman invasion 
of the 11th century. The coming of the Normans immediately began a vast stone building program across Britain, which is well documented and needs no further explanation. Leads to say that for the next 400 years, the building program included cathedrals, castles, abbeys, priories, and municipal structures like bridges, many of which still adorn England today. This vast building program took the master mason to an exalted position and rank because of his method and knowledge in raising a perpendicular higher than anybody had seen before. He understood geometry by using the square, the triangle, the circle. He created the most beautiful proportion buildings, many with an unsurpassed symmetry. He understood spans, which was why he introduced the vaulted ceiling. He understood counterbalance and weight, for which he introduced the flying buttress and pinnacles. He understood weight distribution and modified simple arches to distribute weight in order to gain greater heights. Is it any wonder we read the old charges how the term geometry and masonry become synonymous with each other? And even today, the past master's jewel in England represents Euclid's 47th proposition better known to us as the theory of Pythagoras, which you all remember from your school days. The square of the hypotenuse is equal to the square on the other two sides. And based on that theory, you will already know that by laying down rods, ropes or chains of three, four and five units of equal length per unit, one can form a right angle and a perfect square. With the diagonal line drawn from corner to corner, you have the ratio of one to the square root of two, a guide to most medieval building plans. In fact, if we look for an example at the ground plan and footprint of Norwich Cathedral, built between 1090 and 1145, over 300 years before these parallels were being made between geometry and masonry, you will note the cloister is a square. And if you draw a line, a diagonal line across that square, you will get the length of the nave. Create a square from that length and the diagonal across that square gives you the length of the entire church up to the high altar. Therefore, geometry was a fundamental art necessary to any master mason to obtain proportion, ratio and symmetry, which were the qualities these medieval craftsmen reflected. But such was their importance to the crown and to the church, the trade itself, unlike other trades, was held back and remained unregulated until 1356, despite the fact that from about the year 1080 onwards, there must have been an immense number of masons in London with the building of Tower of London, Westminster Abbey and London Bridge. Such building projects would rely heavily upon manual labour. 
And if one puts the amount of labor required into perspective, the results are quite stunning. For example, when work started on Beaumaris Castle in 1295, at its peak, it employed 400 masons, 30 smiths and carpenters, 1,000 unskilled workers and 20, sorry, and 200 carters who lugged the stone about. In London, in 1377, the population was said to be no more than 35,000, particularly after the plague of 1348, which decimated its population. When deductions are made for women and children, maybe 10 or 12,000 were male adult workmen. At the busiest time, various building works would have employed a number equal to 14% of the workforce in all trades and commerce in the capital. The formal reg regulation and recognition which we learned came in 1356 was when 12 master masons came before the Lord Mayor and the Alderman of Guildhall to draw up a simple code of practice. And again, in 1376, when four master masons were elected to the common council to represent the fellowship. Interestingly, this coincided with the Regis poem and later the Matthew Cook manuscript, both of which have been recognized and adopted as the first English Masonic documents. But to give you some idea of the amount of ecclesiastical buildings completed during the 11th to 15th century, in Kent alone in England where I live, we have two cathedrals and over 340 churches built during that period. Across England as a whole, there still remains over eight and a half thousand churches with medieval fabric, not including possibly up to a thousand which we have lost. So you can see how immense the building program was. But sadly, the well-earned status of the master mason only lasted a few hundred years. As the late Middle Ages saw four major events taking place and all ultimately impacting on the mason's trade. The dissolution of the monasteries between 1536 and 1541. The Renaissance starting in the mid 16th century. The Reformation starting around the same time, 16th century, and the opening up of the new world in the 16th century, which began the redistribution of wealth. All mid 16th century events, which appear to coincide with the dates of the other documents that I've quoted. Following the dissolution of the monasteries, Henry VIII gave gifts of monastic lands and estates to his friends and his supporters. Monastic buildings stopped and many of the existing buildings were raised. And in many cases, the materials were later used to build fine residences for the new lords, earls and barons. The effects of the Reformation caused the decline in the importance of the church 
particularly as an employer. This coupled with the Renaissance, which saw the emergence of planning and design carried out by gentlemen or scholars rather than master masons. Its more immediate effect during the Renaissance was the change in architectural styles, which saw the introduction of the more classical style derived from early Greek and Roman architecture, which saw brick and marble introduced over square stones and flint. The Reformation also introduced new employers into the religious building program, which slowed considerably and the emphasis moved from to the building of palaces, stately homes and official buildings. In Kent alone, only three churches were built during the 16th and the 17th century. The effects of the building industry of the opening up of the new world was also calamitous. The great influx of the new trade in materials, precious metals and various other commodities led to a redistribution of existing wealth. These nouveau riche, which became the new gentry, caused considerable expansion in private building and a change in the employment conditions of masons. And as you would expect, a change in the old time customs and usages. The Reformation with its movement from Roman Catholicism to Protestantism had already reduced the status of the cathedral craftsmen with the cessation of the building and reducing and removing entirely many of the holidays and feast days associated with saints and church festivals. Additionally, the sudden great rise in prices for which there was not a proportionate rise in wages left Masons impoverished, but stimulated building activity to the lowering by the lowering of wages and reducing of real building costs. Collectively, these led to major changes in the Masons industry, ranging from as mentioned, the introduction of gentlemen architects to the Masons loss of status and that great once industry with its usages, customs, practices and legends was now in decline as new employers who imposed new conditions took the place of church and crown. So to answer my own question, why would a once flourishing trade organization suddenly invite unrelated persons into the fraternity? Quite simply, the old Masons trade with its rich heritage was finally brought to its knees and possibly faced extinction. Not being, sorry, almost faced extinction had it not been for the opening up of the craft or the transition of emphasis from operative to non-operative or accepted masons or to use that phrase familiar to us all ancient free and accepted masons why else would those early masonic meetings or those early meetings concentrate so much on the subject of architecture Again, in his 1723 constitutions, Anderson commented on the Gothic style 
saying it was a barbarous product of the Dark Ages and praised the new classic or the various Italian architects of the Palladian style. In York, the antiquary, the antiquary Francis Brake, Drake and his contemporary Edward Oakley, both leading Freemasons in the 1720s, commented on the giving of lectures on architecture and geometry in the lodge. Drake claimed that in London lodges and other parts of the kingdom, lectures on the same were given almost at every meeting. One such lecture delivered in 1723 by William Stukeley still survives in the British Museum and it's entitled the Roman Amphitheatre at Dorchester. Another contemporary lodge minutes tell us that at the old King's Arm Lodge, Master Martin Clare read part of the architecture of Palladio to which the society were very attentive. And George Payne presented a lecture on the manner of building in Persia. Perhaps those lectures were a way of preserving that once great trade with its traditions, usages and customs. You know, I'm making no rash claims here, presenting nothing new nor tearing down any existing theories. I've just presented some thoughts and details from recognised documents which endorse an existing premise, which was that non-operative or, or accepted Masons most probably began to preserve an age-old fraternity with its proud history and its legends and its practices. I believe Freemasonry was born out of necessity rather than design. And in doing so, followed that already established pattern of other trades by admitting men, uh, i.e. those that we call the gentry, to or, or members of the established society who were not engaged in that particular craft properly as patrons or as a means of bestowing honour or special privilege. Even today, as a means of survival, Many members of the London companies, which date from much earlier times than Freemasonry, frequently have little or no connection with the business of that company. In a similar vein, these medieval companies or early fraternity memberships included most of the wealthy men of the nation. Royal patronage was also not uncommon, as Edward III, Henry IV, Henry V, Henry VIII were all members of various fraternities. Freemasonry was no different. It needed to survive and survive it did. It transitioned from geometry to masonry. True masons to Freemasons. Freemasonry to free and accepted masonry and so on to speculative Freemasonry. No different from any other of the age-old medieval companies and fraternities that we find in London today. And that concludes the main part of this paper, which was to just present some, some original thoughts, maybe new thoughts on some old customs. I pass back to you.
Thank you, Mike. Um, uh, it's Hasu. I'm sort of just standing in because I think uh, David and Waha are having problems with their connections. But what an excellent presentation. You sort of tied up uh, loads of loose ends and, you know, <laughs> uh, given, given a few new thoughts. But let me start by saying something interesting. You went to Tottenham College and so did I. And you studied <laughs> British Constitution, and I studied British Constitution. <laughs> in my, so we have a connection. The first, first connection. one I met, uh, met someone who went to the same college and studied the same subjects. <laughs> That's wonderful. Wonderful. Uh, wonderful. It's very interesting uh, the way you've tried to connect uh, loose ends, uh, if you want me to put it that way, and trying to ask. Uh, the audience here to consider those loose ends and see if there's anything that ties them together. But, but I think the greater thing is that what you've done is actually opened a lot of new ways of looking at masonry. Where did it start? Did it exist? Did it, was it created for a specific reason? I mean, you mentioned something very interesting about um, uh, minutes being recorded in Scotland uh, in the first uh, instance. Now, that would only indicate two things to me, that either the Scots were well-versed in writing in the, at that time, who were also yes. stonemasons, or, or that they had non-operative mason who was a clerk of the work, who was a, a, a person who knew how to read and write. Yes, be a member of that. Uh, so you know you can have a view about that as well. But let me not um, let me uh, open the floor up to everyone else to carry forward this uh, discussion and uh, uh, express their views and opinions. I see a number of hands go up already. Uh, first hand that's gone up is Leonidas. Leonidas, would you like to unmute yourself? Uh, thank you very much, my brother. I have a question. What did become of Robert Preston? What did he go on to do or accomplish after? Uh, could he be responsible for the, the known organization, uh, Preston Unity? That's my question to the uh, lecturer. His name okay. Uh, <clears throat> I'm happy to, to take that up. Um, Robert Preston who was the person we mentioned uh, on the papers of the York manuscript uh, was a free man and he was a fishmonger which meant that as a free man he was entitled to join a mason's lodge he is not the same William Preston who we meet up with some 150 years later or 200 years later where the uh, famed Prestonian lectures emanate from so they're not the same person but we have no other information about Robert Preston other than the fact that he's mentioned in this uh, what is accepted as a Masonic document. Anything you want to add to that? Any further comments? Uh, Thomas Sarsky, would you like to uh, unmute yourself and ask your question or make your comments? 
I would. Um, great lecture. I just had a, a comment and a couple questions. The first comment is, um, I've done some research in the District of Columbia regarding our capital city project. And I find that the admission of non-Masons begins at the first speculative charter of the city lodge when we bring in doctors amongst the stonemasons and carpenters to take care of the welfare of the group. And as a progress continues and the stonemason work diminishes, we have an increase of material suppliers who are bringing in goods and services, um, bringing in meat, bringing in uh, uh, slate, bringing in other types of goods, and uh, the stonemasons leaving and the carpenters then begin to have a larger group. And so as the project diminishes from building, we see a movement in the merchant goods in the wholesale goods that are being sold in the city. And so looking that, at that micro scale, you begin to realize that perhaps these projects have been flowed with people who weren't necessarily stonemasons or were smiths or were carpenters or joiners, like in the Irish crafts that came in during the project and, and likely didn't have any other connection other than being a part of that social provision around the labor movement. And that social provision likely had other people who were non-operatives the whole time in order to uh, facilitate the movement of supplies or for religious purposes or for whatever the social group needed to survive in the shanties alongside those jobs. And so I see that as a, a continued arc that happens throughout Freemasonry, uh, at least in the United States, in the Capitol Project of Washington. And so I guess my question is, uh, the first one would be, do you see, instead of looking at Freemasonry as true and free, because free carpenters were considered free workers and free stonemasons were considered yes. free stonemakers, stonemasons as well, do you see that the minor philosophies, like the, the propositions of antiquity that they must have been taught, is really the start of our speculative understanding and foresight that we use in determining our craft? And, and preserving that method of um, foresight and, and free labor movement? I guess that's the first question. Okay, I think, um, first of all, I'm not familiar with the historical elements of, of your land and uh, the development there. I would just ask, what was the time period that you was looking at when you spoke about um, the development and built and Mason's building would that so, have been 1789 to 1792? We have oh, yeah. a, a labor like. force of Irish carpenters and Scottish carpenters yeah. that come into DC. Um, uh, James Hoban, uh, Colin Williamson are two of the people who come in, and then they get a speculative charter from Maryland to start a lodge, but it's a purely speculative lodge, yeah, until yeah. 1800, and then it changes over into. Yeah. Uh, a merchant lodge, which was more common around the region. Right. Yeah, I, I can see that. Um, as I say, I, I, 
never really made any uh, uh, studies there. But by that time, the period time you're talking about, certainly in England, there was very little, although there were, I've no doubt, some operative remnants, Freemasonry had, had become well and truly established by then. And that it was purely what we term as speculative Freemasonry. Uh, and uh, there would have been very, very little uh, um, connection made at that time, at that time, uh, with operative uh, Masons. Um, so I guess, uh, I'm not sure if I'm answering your question very well. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I, I guess we, you've talked about it, but people like James Hoban and Thomas Ivory, which was another architect, all went through an apprenticeship system and all maintained yeah. a, a position in a lodge, which shows a betwixt uh, relationship between both organizations yeah. in Ireland as well as Scotland. And so if, that, yeah. if it was a gentleman's organization in London, perhaps that's right. a different epoch or evolution. Yes, yeah. Yeah, I think I can, I can see that. So the, the two gentlemen that you were referring to were actually stonemasons, were they? Uh, uh, Thomas Ivory was an Irish uh, uh, um, carpenter. James Hoban was an Irish carpenter uh, from the old apprenticeship system uh, who right. built the White House. And Colin Williamson was an yeah. operative stonemason from Scotland, and he was a speculative mason in the States. Right. Yeah, I mean, I, I can see that they would have been... I mean, uh, the secretary of the uh, uh, Dermot, uh, Lawrence Dermot, the Irishman, uh, who became the secretary of the Grand Lodge of the Ancients um, in about 1753, 54, I think it was. He was a painter and decorator and he'd been apprenticed as a painter and decorator. Um, so I, I think it certainly became... Uh, lodge membership certainly declined from that of the gentry to bringing in bona fide tradesmen or bona fide people that were uh, honest, hardworking men, I'm guessing. Very interesting. Thanks so much. Your lecture was very interesting. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Thomas. Um, anyone else? Uh, Charles, you're waving your hand. You want to ask a question? Please unmute yourself and ask your question or make a comment. You need to unmute yourself. You're muted. I think he, uh, I think Charles has stopped unmuting for some reason. Ah, there we go. There you go, Charles. Ah, uh, yes, yes. Charles Lawrence, uh, I'm boringly from London, and uh, I've been in masonry for, for very nearly 60 years, and I've been researching this very area for uh, about 50. And uh, I've written books and delivered many papers, both here and in America. And the thing is, it's a paradox for me. I've been looking at a paradox, the paradox being that for whatever 
brought it up, and I agree with much as the speaker has said today that, that relates to bringing it to where it is to, at, at uh, 1723, when I believe Grand Rogers found it. Uh, but I, I also have a problem in as much that I believe that just as you have Christianity, where there is all kinds of Christian false faiths, there is the one thing it all depends on is the, the teachings of Christ. Okay. Now, in 1723, I believe there was just one person who was responsible for actually creating Freemasonry as we practice it today. Now, why I say that is because when you, when you look at the ritual today, it's exactly the same. My question or comment, really, is to say, look, if you go back to just Matt, everything that's brought it up to 1723, I don't know what precisely brought it up, but it was called Freemasonry, and it was prominent, prominent in London, and there were about 300 lodges, of which about 130 joined the what we call prima grand lodge now we practice today a form of freemasonry which was introduced at that time and it had within it a, a thing which said you must make a daily advancement in science now we've heard about science today the geometry and all the rest of it but in fact the science has not changed neither has the ceremony. So I'm really wanting to sort of comment on the fact, I agree with much that you, the speaker has said today, but we were, we are, we are at where we are. We are today practicing a, a, a ritual which was devised in 1723. We don't pay any attention to the science, but we mouth it every time we go into a lodge you must make a daily advancement in Masonic science. And I believe it's Masonic science which determines the way in which we practice Freemasonry. And so I've spent many years, and I wonder whether your speaker has any thought on that, Only I, I, I mean, I'm, I, I don't know, I've given many papers and so forth at QC and all the rest of it, and uh, I, 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 that doesn't seem to, bring into it that we are where we are. That's what I'm saying. Yeah. However yeah. we arrive there. Yeah, I mean, um, I'm very interested in to hear what you say. What upsets me a little bit these days is that No, I'm still there. Uh, what upsets me a little bit these days is that there is no emphasis on uh, study of um, uh, our origins or uh, our, our, our old ritual documents. And as you say, we at every meeting we mouth the um, the ritual uh, and we just repeat it verbatim without without actually giving thought to what we're actually saying. And um, I think part of that science is that we understand what we're saying and live what we're saying. Yes, I would agree that uh, Freemasonry um, is similar to all the world's, all the world's greatest religions that all encourage brotherly love, relief and truth. 
and those are three tenets that are predominant in all religions um, without a doubt but we don't concentrate on on what's required of of, of, of to be part of that science anymore we just kind of people just want to join and uh, continue to perhaps move up and, and to gain different degrees without actually grasping the fundamental understanding and principle and science as you rightly say of the basic craft freemasonry i'd just like to comment back uh, basically i believe that desgoulier i who i believe introduced science the pretty yeah. we use today i believe he knew all the things that encouraged men to do exactly what you've just said but he was at the same time a scientist and he yes. couched his he couched his, his philosophy in the need that there was no longer a god in the cloud yeah well yeah newton has shown that it was infinite so we must learn our science to appreciate god's directing us but it's from a god that is not the one that he was conventionally used to and as you know he's ordained in into the into the church so he he was worried about that and i think that's true but i think he was also very clever in the so much that he knew exactly what to take out of what was in freemasonry at that time and he brought it over he added other important things like bring you wanted to rub shoulders with the aristocracy he did that and all these things he did and he then said but you must only believe in one god and the reason he would only believe in one god because he was a huguenot and he hated catholics so he did not like the high church that was currently there he wanted people to have a god and so did newton he was a devout he was a disciple of newton so effectively what happened he created the freemasonry we practice today and that's what i believe are his teachings and we do still do it you, you look at everything nothing's changed we all believe in the basic precepts the tenets of that first thing and we but the only thing we neglect is to understand why he was so anxious about the science and that we must face reality and that how god is somebody that is subtly different to the one that he had then and it's even worse now because we've now got multiverses and goodness knows what else some dark black holes and dark matter and god knows what else all intruding on a belief in a man that used to be in the clouds pointing down with a streak of lightning coming out of his finger <laughs> facing us to do it and i think that's something i think people perhaps would be interested to look at some of my work and see i, I spent i've I've just had a P, just done a PhD in it uh, recently, and I believe that, and our second book coming, and my second book's coming out, I think, and 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 just to look at the argument, we were where we were because of all the things you've described by 1723, mm. and now we practice it. Now we ought to try and understand it. <laughs> and some of the yeah. things about it are the history that you discuss yeah yeah we, we do have to have i'm giving a talk up in london in a couple of weeks time on 
St Paul's. Why St Paul's marked the, the knell of the Freemason, of the Mason. It was the first time they had a gentleman architect and they had a quantity surveyor and, and, and designer who was a, a brilliant engineer. St Paul stands there as a beautiful example of the integration of steel, iron and stone and brick. Yeah. St Paul's is made of brick, cladded with stone. There you go. I won't say any more. Sorry. I'll okay, lovely. Thank you very much for your comments. Thank you. Thank you, Charles. Thank you. Anyone that brings me what you were just saying. Do you allow, you know, we're talking about science. Descolia was mentioned, and we have the letter G in the middle of our, our temples. Could that not mean geometry rather than God? Because remember, it was something that many a times was considered to be in a future of humanity, maths. Mm -hmm. Isaac Newton, Desiguri, as mentioned, was a you know, fantastic engineer. So, you know, rather than having a supreme creator, they put their trust in uh, the sciences that they were discovering. Yeah, yeah. Can, can I come back again? I'm sorry to be boring, but basically that 49th proposition worried me. And I asked uh, John Hamill if, what had he got the answer to? When did it first come in? And I didn't know that for years and years until I attended a lecture and the guy talked about systems who in 17, 1726 was asked commissioned to, to make jewels. And he made, I, and, he, and his jewel was a past master's jewel with the thing underneath it. But also if we go back to 1723 and Anderson's thing, You'll notice in his um, preface, he's got that same thing floating in space. He's got the 47th proposition stuck in, air, in the air, and he's got the word Eureka underneath it. Now, the, I believe Eureka Cross is the wrong, the wrong person, of course, but nonetheless, it's interesting that, again, what, what our speaker is saying, that 1720 and... and Anderson, you can't necessarily lie. I think I agree with that absolutely with what he's saying on that one. But there it is in his in his preface. There is the 47 proposition. We practice it. We've got it hanging on our past master's jewel. Interesting. Thank you, Charles. Can I uh, can I comment there? Just a, just a couple of things, just to come back to the brother. To talk about yes the jewel was quite a late innovation the past master's jewel but the name euclid uh, is mentioned in the uh early earliest of of, uh, of manuscripts so that that theory absolutely absolutely totally yeah agree. i just come on to just to come on to uh the word g which or the letter g which uh, our brother mentioned there also um i've always understood G in the center of our lodge room to be geometry rather than the word God. My reasoning for that is purely because G or our God in the English language is not necessarily the same in other languages. So therefore, uh, I don't know, somebody once said to me, no, that, that's that's geometry because and gave me that kind of explanation. 
and I kind of sat with that for a while, but I mean, I'm, I, I, I don't hold fast to it. I don't know how fast, and I'd be interested to hear uh, other people's interpretation of that G. Well, well, Klein in the Klein in the towards the turn of the century, the last century, actually, um, I mean, the, in the 1800s, 1900s, yeah, he was the only person I could find in all the AQCs. Or actually try to define geometry. He said yeah. geometry was masonry. Yeah. That was Klein. Oh. That was around about 18, about yeah. 70, uh, 1898, something like that. I can't remember the exact precise date at the moment off the top of my head. Anyway, Austin said, thank you very much. No, that's fine. I, I, I wish I remembered. I did write a, um, a paper on the letter G, but I can't find it now. So um, we've got a raised hand there as well. I think, Memon. Would you like to unmute yourself and ask a question? Uh, hi, my name is Afra Pim. Uh, I am from Lord General Williams of Pune. Uh, actually, uh, <clears throat> about the discussion about this letter G, it has brought my attention to the uh, tra tracing board charge of the fellow craft degree. Right. In that charge of tracing board, they, they have mentioned the seven liberal arts and sciences, one of them which is geometry. Okay, And at the end of the charge, uh, uh, it is written that uh, the, when our ancient brethren went to receive their wages in the middle chamber of the temple, their attention was drawn to certain Hebrew characters which are here depicted by letter G which denotes God. So I was always... Uh, wondering that G denotes God irrespective of the languages because uh, it is some form of representation of the Hebrew letters which were which was there in the operative Mason's Lodge. So, <laughs> this is very new for me, this interpretation of G as geometry is very new for me. Yeah, no, that, but that's a very good point that you make. Yeah, certainly. Yeah. Because it is clearly mentioned in the ritual that uh, the G, G denotes God. <laughs> no, that's a fair comment. Uh, but also remember on the second degree tracing board, you have the celestial and terrestrial globes which didn't exist uh, in the time when Solomon's temple was built. So, you know, and you're going you're gonna, to gonna take everything with a little pinch of salt and then you of it. <laughs> <laughs> neither would it be possible to build a 48 ton pillar. Well, I mean, that, that's right. And then, and then of course, we've got um, uh, that saying, um, uh, about the names, uh, you know, uh, of the two pillars, and uh, when 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 joined together to establish, and for God said, this my house will stand forever. There is no actual biblical quotation that says that. Um, uh, believe it or not, uh, something things similar, but I, I've, I've looked at every translation of the Bible, and I can't find any <laughs> uh, uh, similar entry whatsoever. But uh, there you are. Artistic license and liberty. Yeah. <laughs> Your know, forefathers made use of that and very well, I think. Well, oh, but it's allegory. Remember, it's allegory, isn't yes. it? And uh, we must never yes. forget that. Yes. I think any other comments? No, thank you very much. Thank you. Uh, Radu Ilinka, you put your hand raised. Would you like to unmute and ask your question or make your comments? Okay, thank you very much for the floor. Uh, fantastic presentation and very enlightening to me. And I would have 
uh, I would like to pose two questions regarding this talk. How would the, the speaker relate um, the findings and what he presented so far with the two uh, other Masonic organizations like Mark Masonry? And since we talked about Scotland, uh, the Royal Order of Scotland, uh, of which I couldn't find much of, apart from what's written on the web pages uh, of the order. Thank you very much and a fantastic talk and a pleasure to me to be here. It's my first time and greetings from Bucharest, Romania. Greetings to you too. Um, if I just may uh, take up the two questions that in particular, you mentioned uh, my comments in relation to the Mark degree and the Royal Order of Scotland. Um, these were, uh, now this is where we get into a difficult, a difficult area because other degrees other than basic craft masonry uh, and the Royal Arch, certainly in England are classed as additional degrees and not part of the main uh, thrust of masonry. And I think we have the York Rite uh, over in America and um, uh, a, 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 another rite in Scotland, which where the degrees all form part of their Masonic system. So in England, our Masonic system is entered apprentice, fellow craft, master mason. The completion of that degree is the Holy Royal Arch. Mark and all other appendant degrees are not actually part of the Masonic, the, the official Masonic system. So those, those uh, the craft degrees and the Royal Arch are administered from the main building in, in Great Queen Street. All other, most of all other degrees are administered in uh, Mark Mason's Hall. So although many, many Grand Lodge officers and many members of, of uh, English Masonry belong to all these different degrees, in my own eyes, and that's just a personal view, they're not part of the original Masonry of 1723 oh. that, that we have uh, grown used to under the English Masonic system. So I, I, as far as Mark goes, Mark was at one point recognised by Grand Lodge, but uh, I don't have the details to hand, but the uh, there was uh, one particular Grand Master that didn't particularly approve of that being part of the uh, pure ancient masonry which is what they call it in Britain um, or in not Britain I should say in, in uh, our ground lodge here in England and therefore it was removed from the English system and the other the other degrees have never really been part of uh, um, and that's things like Knights Templar, um, uh, Rose Choir, uh, um, and the, the other degrees which you're familiar with. So in my own mind, uh, they never ever formed part of 
um, the original masonry, which I was discussing in my uh, essay. I hope that makes sense. Thank you. Any, anything to add, Radu? Any other questions? Thank you. Mike, another thought that occurred to me while you were presenting this paper was the influx of uh, stone maces into London. And my think, uh, and I just thought of the event, the Great Fire of London, where everything was wooden that was burned down and everything was being rebuilt and so on. Would that have created a great influx? I mean, you know, 1666, the Great Fire, and, you know, over the next 30, 40, 50 years, masonry started taking hold in London as such, not in the provinces. Um, there, there was, uh, and I, I'm just talking from memory here, because uh, I, I read quite an in-depth book about the Great Fire of London. The first thing that struck me with the Great Fire of London, that they, in order to get the buildings rebuilt, they reduced all of the tariffs on local and allowed anybody to come in to build. So the person didn't have to be a qualified builder uh, or a qualified mason, shall I say. Um, so the, the main problem with the, with the Great Fire of London was there were so many buildings that need to be carried out, but not enough people to go around, quite simply. You will be interested to note that the wording in the statutes for the Great Fire of London talk about the duration of the statutes being seven years and upwards. Mm, so where do we hear that phrase? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, yes, yes. Uh, so I, I, I often think that the phraseology that mm. we have inherited was in common use mm. at the time of uh, um, the, the writing of the, the ritual, the development of the ritual. Mm -hmm. So we get these strange little sayings that we find. Um, but I can't answer too much about the just just that I remember quite clearly that they passed statutes that allowed um, men from other areas, which they called foreigns. Yes. Um, and that would have been men from other parts of England, not not men from other lands, oh. but which I'm sure they would have done. <laughs> so, they, so, yeah. that, so that would have made Mason, the qualified Masons, the master Masons, if you want to call them, wanting to protect themselves, then that would have incentivized them to form lodges, which would have only admitted those who could prove their qualifications. You know, I'm just I, speculating, but that would yeah, be the Yeah, no, same. no, no, I, I haven't really given that a great amount of thought. Um, because, as I say, I think statutes allowed uh, the use of, of, of what we would term as cowans, okay? Uh, um, uh, uh, men that would work for uh, a cheaper rate of pay and mm. perhaps that were not qualified yeah. um, in order to put back those buildings that, that we were so much in mm. dire need of because it was a considerable acreage of buildings that were burnt out. I don't know at this stage if there were lodges. What I do know, I can tell you, is that there was an old lodge in St. Paul's Yard, an operative lodge in St. Paul's Yard as late as about just at the start of 1700 because James Anderson was expelled from that lodge. 
yes. believe it or not. So that was a that was a um, uh, an operative lodge. But that's all I can tell you on the fire, Great Fire of London. That's something I perhaps should research a little bit more. I, mean, I think you might, it might cause you, you know, it's a curious area because obviously, you know, we have heard of speculative masonry and uh, Elias Ashmore, 1646, being yeah. initiated by his father, you know, friends of his father-in-law who were not stone masons, who were speculative masons, basically. Yeah, that's right. So, you know, that there is indications of speculative masonry being in uh, existence, but operative masonry, maybe the stone masons created that to protect the professional skills and their yes. own trade. That's right. Incidentally, the term, the term speculative never really came into use in common uh, language amongst Freemasons until about 1760. So, um, uh, which was interesting. I'm, I wouldn't have known what was used before, but the, certainly the term speculative was a late, a much later introduction. Gentleman Masons, probably. <laughs> well, yes, yes, I think you're right, Gentleman Masons, that's right, yes. Uh, Thomas Sahaski has raised his hand. Thomas, would you like to unmute yourself and ask your question? So I just, I had a, a comment about the paper. You know, everything that we're talking about um, reaffirms the fact that we're a society that traditions, that is of the tradition and methodology of freedom, carrying that mantle forward. And it's amazing, you know, how people were feudal tenants or serfs and how we've carried the legacy of freedom on forward. And we can be talking about operative masons. We could be talking about people brought into our order and the reality is, is we're a part of this massive free labor movement that is emanating freedom to every one of our descendants yeah. forever, according to English law. Yeah. You know, it's yeah. just exciting to think about. And we're all over the world doing it. Sorry, I didn't mean to no, no, it's, it's a valid point to make. Yeah, very valid. Very valid. Any other questions, comments, anything else? Anything else anyone wants to say? Charles, you are unmuted. Did you want to say oh, well, anything? Basically, I, I all all I can say is all I can say is that if anybody's interested in that last subject, I published a paper in AQC called uh, "A Brick by Brick Account of Modern Freemasonry," and I recommend them to read it. <laughs> Thank you. Um, um, there was. Uh, there was some other uh, portions of the uh, the paper which I didn't include, uh, which was advertised, and that was what induced men to join Freemasonry, and the other one was the number of degrees that were practiced in those days. Yes. Now, if you'd like me to continue with that, I'm happy to, or if you want to call the the uh, um, they're much shorter papers; they're only uh, uh, just a few pages long. Well, may, maybe we could do that as another presentation, if you wish, sure. you know, because that might make more sense because uh, more, it'll create, create more curiosity to all those attending to attend again. <laughs> sure. uh, David is on there. I, I don't know if uh, he wants to say anything. No, he's muted. Yeah, I mean, you know, I'm sure David will try to arrange something. It'd be a delight to have you back again anyway. 
you know, as an old Tottenham boy, you know, nothing to do like this. <laughs> <laughs> Which year did you go to Tottenham? Oh, gosh. Now, it would have been a lot later than you, I can assure you. Uh, um, a lot earlier than you, I beg your pardon, sorry. Uh, mine was about 1970, uh, about 70, 71, 72, 73. Well, it's the same, same year as me, 70, 71. Do you know what? I may even have sat next to you. Yeah, but <laughs> in, in the British Constitution classes, in yeah. the basement. <laughs> we, we've got Jack Douglas who's raised his hand. Jack, can you uh, unmute yourself? And, uh... Go ahead, Jack. Good afternoon. Good afternoon. Good afternoon. I would just like to say I was invited by Brother Jason. And this was one of the most interesting things that I've been involved with in quite a long time. Good. I mean, that, that presentation really sparked my interest. And now I, I will start doing my own research. Ah. And I, I just wanted to thank you for that. Wonderful. Yep. You're more than welcome, brother. I mean, that's uh, that is always the hope of everybody that that, that um, lectures or writes papers, is that it, it at least gives another brother a little bit of spark to push them on to. Uh, and I have to tell you that that studying Freemasonry isn't difficult. There are many good books. There are many websites, good websites that you can uh, follow, often follow. Um, there's many, many good papers that have been published. So you don't have to look far. So good luck to you, brother. I, I'm really pleased that uh, that's uh, you, you've, that's inspired you. Oh, 100%. 100%. Thank you so much. I'm By sure way, everyone here probably feels the same way. Yeah. By the way, Jack, we are on number 296 of presentations so far. So all of them are available on YouTube. If you go to Superior Order, uh, you'll find all the all the presentations there. Well, moving forward, I hope to be here for each yeah, one. Uh, if you send your name on uh, or details to David, whose uh, details appear on the system, he will make sure you're added onto the uh, circulation list. Yeah. Can, Thank you so much. Can you Thank you so much. That last questioner to uh, have a look at my book. It's called The Mod Key to Modern Freemasonry, Volume One. Then Volume Two's coming out next. Uh, well, okay. if you stick it in the chat, the details, type it in, and everyone can have a. They can they uh, they can pick it up. If um, if I have a, a blog, which I uh, write on, uh, which is called Freemasons Are Us. Okay, that's Very easy simple. to remember. Pardon? That's easy to remember. It is. Freemasons are us. Yeah, we had a Toys R Us. So. That's right. So did we in England. So, <laughs> so that's, um, that's a WordPress account. So uh, if you have a look at Freemasons are Us, you're bound to find uh, some of my other papers. Okay. Will do. Thank you so much. Mark, would you're you welcome. like to put that in the chat? So anyone who wants yes, to will. the chat afterwards... Uh, can uh, keep that as a yeah. And Charles, you as well, if you want to put your well, ba detail. well, basically, I'm not very good at these uh, internet things, so I'm a bit bad. But uh, if you could contact me, uh, uh, I'm 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 on Amazon and those others uh, with my book. You could just 
took my name. Charles, all we can see is your first name. There's no second well, name. It's, it's, I've got the same name as the speaker. It's oh, yeah. <laughs> Lawrence. Professor Charles Lawrence. Yeah. Okay. Well, thank you, gentlemen. Thank you very much. Thank you, thank everyone. You. Um, I don't know if anyone else has got anything uh, to uh, comment on, to add to other speakers or to any other comments uh, this uh, evening. But we've been here just, on, uh, just around two hours. Uh, I don't know how you're doing for time, Mike. But uh, I'm fine. I'm fine. If anybody wants to, I, I did. Did I think a brother Don Ray there was, was he putting his hand up to speak? Yeah. Uh, I could. I'm trying. Uh, guys, I cannot hear. Uh, I, I can hear Caleb. I think Brother Don Ray. Brother Don, unmute yourself and. Uh, Brother Don, unmute yourself and go ahead. No, I haven't. Uh, I don't think I've activated anything, and there's nothing I can see on my. Um, no, I thought you had your hand up. Oh, I might have raised my hand when I was physically. Uh, oh, that's what it might have been. Sorry. Sorry. Yeah. Well, now, now you're. That's all right. Thank you. You're welcome. Anyone else? Any more comments? Any more views? Any more thoughts from anyone? Okay, so on the chat, I put up the uh, my blog, okay. .wordpress.com. Um I'd just like to ask everyone if you want to download the chat, you can do that and uh, keep it for yourselves. So you'll have the details as well. And uh, uh, by chance, Lawrence, his uh, details as well, keep his name and you can search on Amazon, as he said. So... We can go from there. Um, as there are nothing, nothing else, no one else has got any Ah, super. Okay, let's go for first uh, our projected sound. Uh, unmute yourself, brother. Go for it. Um, the, the, the statutes of, uh, you said 1697, 1698 or something like that against more statutes in 17. Um, O one or O two something. My question is, where do I find those statutes? Where can I get a copy of those statutes? Okay, um, I'm happy to put um, my paper today online. So uh, I, I've put into the chat Freemasons uh, dot Freemasonsrust.wordpress.com. If I put today's transcript in that. Um, it should give you a guide of, of the pieces of, of, of um, information that you might want. You can also contact me personally on that, and I can give you copies. If you want copies of these documents, I can actually give you copies because they're not copyright. So I'm happy to share them with you if you'd like to contact me on. Uh, in fact, I'll also tap in my uh, personal email address, which I'm happy to uh, yeah. communicate with you. Mike, it would be really helpful if you're doing that. And that's very kind of you to maybe send it to David, who can then circulate it amongst the whole of the superior yep. group uh, with your details as well, so that he can do the, uh, your uh, all the details in one one go. 
That's fine, yes. So everyone will get it because obviously there's all four, four, four you know, about 1,500 uh, members uh, here and there, Facebook and everywhere. So you can circulate that around. Okay. Brother Robert, got your hands raised. Finally, I was wondering when you were going to come up. Go on, unmute yourself, Robert. Gotcha. Hi. Uh, God, so much. Uh, my, bro Brother Mike, thank you for widening my rabbit hole even further. <laughs> You'll keep welcome. me going for another couple of years here. <laughs> um, I've, uh, in, you know, I've told people this before, but in looking at my family, I see that they were uh, on this path as time went by um and um it's it's interesting because uh uh i see that what they built towards this in terms of the speculative uh rather than the operative was uh the tenants were there for a long time and as it turns out those ancestors usually lived ne next to some sort of monastery. <laughs> so, ah, right, yeah, yeah. Where, where, where'd they get these ideas from? Oh, yes, you know, the uh, Cistercians were over here, and the Benedictines were over there. So it's like they took, they took, you know, like anything is, it becomes a melange. Um, right, yeah, and, and it also turned out that a good number of them. Um, their life's work for a while was uh, as mercenaries. Right. So it's like uh, in 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 their dotage, they wanted to uh, atone for things, and they didn't want their kids to. <laughs> they wanted them to be good lards, as they say. And, and yeah, yeah. Um, and so I, I think there was this kind of, um, you know, there's always this kind of. Um, uh, thing by by gentry it happened here when i was growing up everybody wanted to hang with me because i went to the public school you know and they went to places like choate and trinity you want to hang uh, out with a working class guy you know yeah <laughs> i was just like whoa you know hang out with these guys they're reading all uh, it, it was an interesting juxtaposition because um i was more interested in their classes than they were <laughs> oh right yeah but, you know, i hear what they had you know what what kid in public schools reading Chaucer, you know? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yes, exactly. But um, to me, it's been been interesting that over the years that um, it's suddenly like they wanted to, uh, not so much slum it, but they 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 liked the the you know the the work ethic. I I, I believe at, at times because every kind of goes off on their crazy paths. Um, as you go along, look how much money spent on certain nutty parties, you know. Uh, <laughs> uh, so um, I think that had something to do with it. And the other thing, it's, it's interesting, the points that were brought up today between the London Fire and uh, Washington, D.C. Now, I descend from those that, that settled uh, Perth Amboy from Scotland and um, basically some of the first stone houses. A lot of them ended up in D.C. You know, later on, you know, in, in terms of their kids ended up in D.C. because they carried on some of the some of the uh, operative masonry. 
um, and you know, still had contacts with 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 the lodges there. And yes, more carpenters came in than stonemasons at a certain point. And then, um, like you said, it, it went up on on the chain to other types of merchants um, in terms of how an operative uh, lodge would would work. And I think these days you kind of look at it. Uh, who hires a stonemason in the construction industry anymore? They, they want somebody who knows how to slap up sheetrock, you know. <laughs> of, course, of course, yeah. But um, no, thank you for uh, you know touching on all, all all the points. Like I said, you widen the rabbit hole and uh, giving. And also thank you, uh, brother Charles. You know, I'm definitely going to try to see that uh, brick by brick history. Uh, interesting point you brought up about uh saint paul's thank you oh and uh i think david answered my question i was asking what happened with the uh, uh number 287 ended up going private now it's public again according to him thank you thank you hasu for taking over uh always always an able host <laughs> thank you <laughs> Um, I was just the other thing that just occurred to me when we were talking carpenters is that one of the things we forget that the stonemasons may, may have built everything, the walls and everything, but it required carpenters to do the the roofing and the timber work. So they had to work very closely. Could that imply that the carpenters were actually the speculative masons who the craft, you know, the stonemasons admitted, but they would know their secrets how they cut the stone and where they lay the notches because if they had to put the joists and all that in the building they would have to make sure that the, they knew how the uh, stone mason was cutting the stone. Um, carpenters were an essential part of uh, any project where you was building a church or building a cathedral and I'm sure you would be well familiar with in order to put up an arch, you would have to build a former or a, uh, a frame to build it on. Then you remove that the frame or the former would be made out of wood or timber. Then the timber would be removed once the, uh, yes. the, 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 the it's the same with the vaulted ceilings. They yes. would have to put in uh, a former uh, made of timber before they put the ceiling in. So I don't know, it would be interesting to know how close carpenters and masons worked. It yeah. would be very, very, because, very. Uh, I, yeah, I, I always thought it just sparked that thought in me because I was watching a documentary on how they build cathedrals and how they sort of create the arches and you know, uh, you, you may create the arches from wood initially because uh, yeah. once you cut stone, you know, you've got to work with it. Whereas with wood, you can always add or take a bit more off right, you know, yeah. as, a, as a template. So uh, something to, uh, there you go, stereotomy. <laughs> stereotomy. Uh -huh. Ron, you've got your hand up. Uh, go ahead. If you want to unmute and ask a question. Am I unmuted now? Yeah, yeah. You go ahead. Okay. Uh, the lecture was fantastic. Uh, I've seen and found much information on the early days of Freemasonry in, uh, uh, in Scotland and in England. But the third Grand Lodge of, of Ireland, uh, there doesn't seem to be much available on the early history. And I was wondering if 
uh, any of you can suggest a source for that information. Yeah, I can actually, I've got a book, uh, which I, I haven't got to hand, but if you look in the, uh, in the chat section, I've put my email address. And if you'd like to contact me, Ron, uh, I would give you a suggestion for a book which talks a little bit about uh, Irish Freemasonry. Is that helpful? I think we may have lost Ron. Oh, Ron? No, no Ron? I was having trouble unmuting myself. Oh. Okay. Uh, that I, I certainly will contact you, and uh, and I appreciate the information. That's okay. I can recommend something for you. Okay. Thank you. You're welcome. Any any more comments, questions? I think as I said our speaker has been there for two hours, uh, giving us beautiful information, loads of things to think about. And has been very kind in, uh, kind to share his paper with us. So, you know, we can't ask yeah. anymore. Um, we would be delighted to have you back. Um, if you sort of keep in touch with David, we'll try, he'll try, because he's got a calendar, basically. So he will try to work out a couple of days that uh, you can come back and, you know. Well, that, that's fine. My invitation come via Martin. Is it? Uh, Martin Fawkes, yeah. So uh, Martin's my publisher. So, okay. Um, oh, yeah, that's fine. There's lots more information to share because uh, I have um, uh, another couple of books which I'm working on, hopefully, to get out this year or early next year. So uh, there's, no there's a question. Caleb has asked me a question. What does our dear brother think of the Ballsbridge Square circa 1503? That was... Um, uh, in, in Ireland, uh, there was a bridge over uh, in Limerick there, uh, um, a bridge over the Shannon, I believe, which as they was deconstructing mm. it, they discovered the famous square. square yeah. Do you remember? And it said on it something along the lines of, I will live with love and care mm. on the level and by the square, something of... of uh, so there was definitely a moral, a moral issue there. But like so many things, it can't be tied to any particular lodge. There was obviously a lodge of brothers working there. And, uh, but I would think by 1503 in Ireland, it would have been operative Masons. That's, this is just a speculative guess. Operative Masons, not uh, non-operative Masons. So we do know that from as early as 1360, 1380, Free Masons, that's working Masons, had moral attributes in their code of practice. So um, by 1503, which would have been 140 years later, they may well have been, uh, because there was a tradition that you leave something under the foundation. Many um, uh, stone Masons left coins there was always a builder's offering in a fireplace and behind a fireplace. Um, and even today that I know that uh, certain lead workers, when they're renewing lead, they will put things underneath the lead that they're laying. So when they come, so all I can think of, of the, um, 
that particular square that they discovered uh, latterly, they didn't discover it in 1503, that was when it was dated, um, was some moral guidance that, that, that the Masons there lived by. But it's a beautiful, it was a beautiful find and an incredible find as well. But, but I think that's, uh, there's a dispute as to the dates uh, because of the way the handwriting doesn't match the 1503 period. So. Right. Uh, well, so. I mean, it would it would depend. Yeah, I mean, and I can see that. I haven't read that off the top of my head. It would depend on who inscribed it, because if it was a uh, a tradesman, um, tradesmen were, were were not always literate, mm. but it may have been um, a master of that particular trade who would possibly have been literate, because he may have had to keep records for his own master who was employing him so that, that uh, yeah that's interesting well i, I can't you know don't quote, quote but i think that's when i was listening to someone uh, uh they mentioned that there's an article in one of the called the Carnati magazine you know so it may be in there if i'm not mistaken yeah, but yeah, don't, no, don't, yeah, don't take it for gospel but definitely I bet the that's the problem isn't it yeah, that's the yeah. problem. We get these bits of information. Yeah, we can't always recall where we where we found that. Yeah. I'm sure it, the speakers mentioned that there was a specific article written in called Coronati about it, uh, with disputed because of the handwriting styles right. which were yeah. for in a period around 1500s to what. Uh, the, uh, the the presenter or writer of that paper thought that it was more 1700 type of style of writing rather than 1500 yeah. so so you know if i find it I'll let you. <laughs> yeah it's interesting great great well brothers sisters everyone who's attending thank you very much for being here today um mike would you like to leave any last uh, comments uh, any observations any thoughts yeah i mean we are on the night of our initiation and we've heard this mentioned just earlier in the uh, by somebody. We are charged to make a daily advancement. Mm. That charge is never rescinded, no matter whatever lofty rank you might achieve in Freemasonry. Whether you become a Grand Master or, or, or whatever, that simple charge of making a daily advancement has never rescinded and it's never been easier to further your knowledge with Freemasons subjects or masonry. What I would suggest to anybody that wants to do that, wants to broaden their horizon is to the lodges in England have a mentor. Now I don't know whether the lodges around the world have a mentor but you also have a provincial office uh, which I would always, or a district office, wherever you are in the world, I would always suggest that you look for a um, a book list, a recommended book list. And based on that, you can select and learn information from a recognised source, because there is some pretty dodgy stuff out there. Um, so I would always say to everybody, in order to, uh, if, if they're not confident, in what books to read, contact the provincial office or their district office and ask them for a book list. That way they'll know they'll get 
recommended books to further their knowledge. Thank you, Mike. Um, I think uh, that concludes this, uh, today's uh, presentation. And thank you very much, Mike, for taking time out, coming over and share, sharing your thoughts and giving uh, us, as someone mentioned, our dear Robert mentioned, more rabbit holes to <laughs> go down. <laughs> so, but it's much appreciated, and we thank you. And we look forward to seeing you again. And you know, in my uh, pleasure, we have the presentations. And as I said, you know, if you want to keep in touch with David or uh, you know publishers yeah. or whatever, please do that, and we will see you back on this uh, forum again. Most, most definitely. Uh, thank you for definitely. your time. Thank you. Thank you very much, everybody. Uh, that's, uh, I'll close the forum now. If everyone is, uh, if anyone has any comments for you or any, any, anything to say, you know, please go ahead before I press the button and say leave. <laughs> I think it, everyone, everyone is uh, quite content. And you're going to have enough to think about for tonight anyway, Mike. <laughs> okay. Thank you very much. Bye-bye now. Bless you, everyone. Take care. See you uh, tomorrow when we have an next lecture. Take care. Bye-bye.